Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And today's guest um, was the most fun conversation. This conversation was the best conversation I've had since doing the podcast. Uh, The gentleman's name is Matthew Portell. He's a principal of Fall Hamilton Elementary School in Metro Nashville Public Schools. Um, They are, they've been recognized internationally as an innovative model for school uh, model school for trauma-informed practices, which is really cool. That's our topic today. We're going to dive deep into trauma-informed practices. Uh, he's the school's work's been on national public radio. Uh, it's been on a local documentary called Enough, PBS, Edutopia. Um, and so it's been a lot of different places. Max Portel also um, has an organization that he see, uh, oversees called Shifting Paradigms in Education. It's uh, or a paradigm shift education. Sorry, Matthew. Um, this conversation, uh, we get to meet somebody who is super passionate for education, but more importantly, super passionate for people. The way he loves people, the way he serves people, the way he dives into uh, serving people through trauma, you know, trauma-informed practices is just awesome. It was such an honor to talk to him. Uh, if you've never heard of this man before, sit back and enjoy this man's passion. Um, and then I would say have fun on Google, finding his other videos and other ways to, to learn about him. He's got his own podcast, which has got to be great because it's him. Um, just sit back. This is a great conversation. Again, if you want to, if you know a lot about trauma-informed practices, it'll be interesting. If you know nothing about trauma-informed practices, it is interesting. If you're an educator, it's interesting. I actually would say, even if you're not an educator, it's interesting. Um, so enjoy if you haven't subscribed again we need you to subscribe we appreciate your listenership viewership whatever whatever way you consume this that means the world to us um we feel very very passionate about the work we're doing here and we can't do this without you so thank you so much uh i I don't know you guys are probably going to laugh at much i've talked about matthew portell but it was just such a great conversation that um i want you guys all to know that as you dive in because this man is awesome all right thanks so much enjoy Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you being here today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so we start every podcast the same way. Tell us who you are and what you love about what you do. Uh, My name is Matthew Portell. I am the principal of Fall Hamilton Elementary School in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm also a national and international uh, speaker, trainer, facilitator of trauma-informed educational practices. Um, why I love what I do is because uh, it's what I do. I, I impact the lives of children every day, unapologetically disrupting archaic systems that need to be shifted for our kids. So um, I think that the, the best part of what I do and what I love is I get to see the outcomes um, literally unfolding in front of me. So uh, it's not a, I don't get to see it uh, necessarily uh, I get to see it in the moment, and I also get to see the impact long term. Well, I've been following you from afar for a few years now, um, and, and there, we have mutual friends and people I really respect in education, uh, the reform movement all across the country that just think the world of you and your focus of you know positive disruption, right? Like I know you're talking about disruption, but yeah. it's all to love and serve people better. Yes. Um, the one thing I don't really know is before we dive into that disruption, have you always known you're going to be an educator? I'm curious about your education journey up to today. Well, I know that people may not be able to see me because this, this is a podcast, but you could see my plaid shirt. Ironically, um, I initially got into forestry 
Um, so the answer is no. Um, and I'm going to be honest, it, I was running from what people were telling me I need to do. Um, I, I love the outdoors. Uh, I, I love fishing. I love mountain biking. Uh, and so I thought that was my passion, right, was to, to be in forestry or be a, a park ranger or something in that, in that field. But then everyone kept saying, Matthew, you need to be in education. Like the kids, kids just for some reason um, just gravitate towards, towards your, your spirit and, and how you operate. So uh, I fought that for a long time. And I didn't, gr- I didn't actually get my educational degree until I was 29. Um, and so I didn't have a professional career before that. I, I um, was a very free-spirited young man. Um, but once I, once I got into education, I've relentlessly been pursuing um, what is best for kids, families, educators, and those that I work next to um, since that day. And I haven't looked back, and I love every single minute of it. One trend I've noticed, so we've been doing this podcast for about 12 months or so now and interviewed a lot of really cool people. One of the trends I've noticed in educators who are really big on, uh, again, positive disruptions, the word I'm going to use right now, because they're not trying to buck the system. They believe very much in the system. They just want it to be better, um, is that uh, when folks like yourself are doing that, usually there's some sort of root educational experience that they had that or didn't have that they wish they would have had. Did you have any sort of story from your educational experience upbringing that provided that spark and fire for you today? I did. Um, it wasn't a positive one. I'm going to be honest and say that uh, I agree. I agree with you in, in, in that people get into education for two reasons. Either they had a great educator um, or they didn't. Um, and I had great educators. It's not that I didn't. Uh, matter of fact, one of them changed my life forever. But my experience as a whole was not a good experience. And so um, I wasn't a kid that would sit still. Um, you can't see it right now, but my legs are continually tapping and I do have a clicky pin and it might be clicking here shortly. Um, I am, I'm very active. Um, and so school wasn't designed for me uh, in the, the late or the early eighties into the nineties. Um, I was told I was obnoxious. I was told I couldn't sit still. I was told I wasn't smart. I was told all of these things um, that took until I was in my uh, mid-20s to realize that that wasn't the truth, Um, that what I was told, I actually had much more potential um, than people were giving me credit for. And I think it came to, I think there was a moment in my career where that came to a head Um, in one moment. I was actually standing in front of a large crowd in England, um, speaking about the work at my school in Tennessee. And I had a flashback like that quick. And it was um, my teacher telling me to be quiet in school. And I thought the irony that right now I'm standing across the globe talking to people um, and people are actually just listening. And if that genius that I had then would have been fostered and empowered. Um, I, I just can't imagine what my school experience would have been like. Well, when you went into teaching, uh, I believe you focused on EL, right? You focused on English as second language. How, how, was that something that was just needed at the time? Or was that a unique passion of yours that you wanted to follow as you started your career in education? So yes and yes. Um, Ironically, my brothers, I am, I have two older brothers. One lives in Taiwan, one lives in Mongolia. 
um, and they teach English. Um, and by no way did we all like align forces. It just kind of happened that way. I have an anthropology minor, so I love the idea of cultures and, and just learning about people really. Um, and so I went into EL because I was fascinated by um, Nashville's global um, population here. A lot of people don't know we are, uh, we used to be a large refugee relocation center in the country. Um, so we have the largest Kurdish population outside of Iraq. We, we have a large Somalian uh, community. We have a large Hispanic community. And so when I began to learn more about culture, that just aligned to me. And that's ultimately why I went in to be a teacher of English of other languages. Um, and I spent the first over half of my career in that space. Uh, and it taught me a lot. Well, anybody who has spent any time listening to you, spend two seconds researching you, or, I mean, even they just started listening to this podcast, uh, they're going to learn quickly. Your passion is for trauma-informed practices and serving individuals, classrooms, schools, and districts through those practices. Have you always had that passion or was there an epiphany moment where you just like, this is it, I've got to go do this and I've got to tell the world about it? Yeah, so yes and no. Um, as a classroom teacher, I didn't, I didn't even know it. And I want to be honest, some of my students have reconnected back to me um, through social media. And, and one student, her name is Jacqueline. Um, I still remember she was, she was little bitty and she would stand next to me uh, at recess and she would just like stand next to me and look at me. And I would say, Jacqueline, don't you want to go play? No, I don't want to. Jacqueline, she don't, no, I don't want to. I, I remember very clearly. And she said, Mr. Porto, you probably don't even remember this, but you had a space in the room and we would get upset that we could go and calm down. I literally did not remember it. Um, and she said, I just remember that because nobody else ever did that. Um, and, and now my school, we have peace corners in every classroom. Didn't even know I did that as a classroom teacher. I guess it was just something I did. Um, always big on community, always big on doing things differently um, from the way that I, I taught to the way I designed the classroom. Um, I once had two rows that were facing each other where students had a, a, a peer on their shoulder and a peer in front of them and then a gap. We called it the gauntlet. When a kid did something great, the children got to identify it and they got to run through the middle of the of these uh, desks, giving each other high five. Wasn't brought on by me, it was peer to peer. Those type of things I did because I understood the power of community. Now the paradigm shift that happened to me when, when we're talking about trauma-informed practices happened my first year of principal. And I'm gonna be very honest and tell you, I was not a trauma-informed principal in my first year, the first half. Um, we did not have the practices we have. We contained kids, physically restrained kids that year um, way too often. Um, I found myself feeling ethically like this wasn't right, but it was what I was trained to do. Um, and I felt like what kids were bringing was, it, it was bigger than poverty because a lot is thrown into the poverty pot. Um, and, and it just, something was just, just resonating. Like, this isn't right. I got invited by a, um, a peer that isn't even in education. Uh, he's actually, in, he was in mental health. And he said, you need to attend this, this lecture. And it was a lecture of a neuroscientist and assistant principal out of DC. And they began to talk about these things called ACEs. And at the time I had never heard of ACEs. I didn't know what adverse childhood experiences. I didn't know what that was. I didn't realize it was a study from Kaiser Permanente, the CDC to look at the 
the impact of adversity and, and how it correlates to health outcomes. As they began to present this, my paradigm shift happened that fast, literally in, in moment. Um, I started picturing kids when they started talking about the impact of behavior and, and I was picturing kids in my school. Um, they then asked me if I wanted to attend a question and answer session with the two presenters in a small group. Um, and, and, and I broke down. I actually emotionally broke. Um, I cried. Um, I felt remorse. I felt shame. Um, I felt all those pieces because what we were doing to kids is not what we should have been doing for kids. Um, and that's in that moment in January of, I guess it would be 2015 now, maybe 14, um, immediately started changing how we did things at Fall Hamilton. Um, I met with a team. We started training in March. Nobody was doing training around adverse childhood experiences. Nobody was doing trauma training in schools. Um, again, I'm an activator. I'm not going to wait on somebody else to do it. Um, we're going to jump in. Um, I know my staff knows this about me. They do have to keep me in check uh, sometimes because I have really big pie in the sky ideas. Um, but they were on board for the most part. Uh, that's where the paradigm shift began to occur. And since then, uh, I would say we haven't looked back, but there's been times we've stepped back uh, and had to step back forward. This work is a journey and it's, it, it's not a finish line. You, nobody has arrived at the most trauma-informed school in the world. It doesn't exist um, because the nature of what we do uh, changes literally now year to year. So I, I, I have so many questions off of this. Um... One of them is uh, your epiphany of, man, we were not a trauma-informed school. I was not a trauma-informed leader. Uh, I, you know, my background was in uh, district leadership and uh, teaching. And I, I wonder, how would I test or know if I could consider myself a trauma-informed? Like, I know there's training and certain things, but like, just right now, what are those questions I'd be asking to know if I'm really leaning towards trauma-informed as an educator or not? Yeah. And here's what I say. Trauma-informed is an operating system. It's like iOS. It's like Windows 10. It's, it's how we think. It's not program. Yep. Um, it's not something that we do. It's who we are. And so, for example, um, how the, the things that I, when I talk to people that I understand are the depths of trauma-informed, we've got to move from this idea of what's wrong with kids and move to what's happened to them right? We have to keep co-regulation, and I'll define what that is in just a minute, as the forefront of all of us as educators and even parents. How I describe co-regulation is putting our oxygen masks on before we try to get our children or our students to put theirs on, which means we remain calm even in the midst of a storm. Um, that right there is one of the hardest things to do, and I'm just going to be honest, as a parent, for sure, as an educator, it's actually easier for me than being a parent. Um, but in the midst of when kids are in crisis and kids are dysregulated, understanding that neuroscience is very clear, um, there is, a, there is a, a piece of neuroscience, it's called mirrored neurons, where we are connected in ways when emotionally charged that can impact those around us. And I'll tell you about a study that was done in 2016 in just a minute. But as we have dysregulated children, it is imperative for us to stay calm. Don't take it personally and understand how to stand in that space and that pause 
to support kids through those dysregulations. Kids do not come with dysregulation skills for the most part, right? We have to learn those. So you talk about you know co-regulation of taking care of the adults. I think the same way you just said. I feel like I would have gotten high marks for that as a uh, practitioner. I've got very low marks as a, <laughs> a father of three with three kids, yeah. uh, seven, five, and one. We're actually painting our house right now and uh, staying at my in-laws who are wonderful, oh. but uh, my kids' routines are just out the window. And I know I have not been uh, a great example for them. Uh, what is it that we have to do for the adults? I've heard you say a couple of times, you really have to take care of the adults first. Um, I can't believe that's a novel idea, but it feels like it's something that people are really starting to understand now. Well, I think we're at a, we're at a crossroads in, our, in, in, in education, in our field, um, as now conversations of teacher shortages are starting to happen conversations of workloads are starting to happen. I think before ever in history, teachers are now starting to recognize the load and weight that they carry. Um, I do say that there's been changes that have occurred in our field. Um, one of the greatest in our time was Sandy Hook. Um, at that moment, educators were looked at as frontline workers. Never before in our history has the country looked at educators as frontline workers. We didn't have active shooter drills. We didn't have intruder drills. We didn't have lockout drills. We didn't have lockdown drills. So all of these pressures continue to mount on teachers. So what I think we have to do is humanize education, not just for the children, but for the adults that are also working in the schools. So some of the things we have to do is we have to identify that adults are humans too. Um, what happens to us and what, have ha what has happened to us, we do not leave it at the door. Um, we don't just so, oh, well, somebody broke into my car last night and stole my credit cards. Tomorrow, I'm going to show up to school and I'm just going to be fine, right? That's not how it works. So I think having, having support systems in schools, we have something called tap in and tap out, where if an adult, for whatever reason, is feeling dysregulated, they're feeling out of sorts, they're feeling, let's be honest, that a kid may be just getting on their nerves, and they can feel themselves emotionally becoming escalated. They can go on to our GroupMe channel and say, I just need a minute. Adult's going to come in. It's going to make sure the class stays settled. That adult can leave. Another adult may join and say, do you need me to come hang with you? Are you okay? Um, and we give teachers a minute. Um, just that simple piece goes a long way. We give quarterly planning days to our teachers so they don't have to try to fit it all in every single week. I mean, these little pieces make a massive difference uh, when we're talking about self-care. I could have used that tap in, tap out. My students, I taught high school, so they're mm. a little bit more mature to, to, I could communicate how I was feeling sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and they would call it, they'd say, Mr. O is going to turn green. Folks, get careful. Uh, and I, cause I never, like, I'm just I, like you very much. Like I was very passionate. I didn't take offense to anybody's attitudes because I knew we were all bringing our, our own stuff to school. Yeah. But every once in a while I'd be ready to go incredible Hulk moment. And I could have used a tap out versus showing my kids the incredible Hulk side of me. <laughs> um, that, that would have been awesome. I think um, one of the, one of the, I guess I'll let you ask a question. What are the misnomers about trauma informed care? I have a lot of specific questions about it, but when you're out there talking about it, uh, what are some of the things that people push back on? Kids aren't held accountable. Mm. 
That is the biggest. Sounds like you've never heard that before. Oh, that's, I'm not gonna lie. Like, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to stay calm because I do become dysregulated around this topic. Mm. Um, that for some reason our culture is so grounded in punishment that we feel that that is the answer to teaching kids skills. So I use this all the time. If a child comes into a school and doesn't know how to read, what do we do? We put them in interventions and specific interventions. We actually teach them core instructions. We support them. If a child doesn't know how to do math, we do the same thing. But historically and contextually, if a child doesn't know how to behave, what do we do? Punish. So imagine if a child came in and, and was behind in reading and we punished them, right? No child has ever been sent home and learned the skill that sent them home in the first place, right? Like, so I think that's it. So let me give you some examples of, of how we build capacity for kids. We do use a restorative process. So if a kid makes a mistake, we ask them questions. What, what were you thinking when it happened? What have you thought about since? What are you going to do to fix it? And how are we going to move forward? Kids come up with their own plans to restore. And then in the moments, if a child rips something off of the wall, guess what the child has to do? Put it back. You have to put it back. That's it. If a child um, runs down the hall, guess what we make them do? They go back and walk the same distance, right? We're reinforcing by teaching kids. We have here, we're very fortunate because over the last six years, we've developed our school to be in a trauma-informed. We've invested in that. So we have a full-time social worker, full-time counselor, community mental health provider. So we actually, instead of suspending kids, we put them and support them in teaching the skills that they need. So I'm gonna give you another example. We had a child that would come in and tell everyone to F off every day, Yep. right? That was her thing. So punishing her wasn't gonna change the fact that she came in and said that every day. So what did we do? We taught her for two straight weeks a greeting on what to say when you come in, even if you're mad. And guess what happened after two weeks? She quit saying it. Hmm. And that's what that's 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 one thing about consequences and punishment. Um, it's not about that. It's about building kids' capacity by teaching. Well, do you find? And again, I know we started talking when you, you're you're introducing yourself. You know, you're, you're really focused on kind of K eight disruption. But uh, I have to think about some of the high school educators I worked with. Uh, their pushback in this case. Do you find there's a difference of like when they get to high school? Um, I'll tell you a quick story. One of the things that drove me crazy was at the school I taught at, we had all these 10 day hall sweeps. If you got caught in a hall sweep, the, the principal, and I love him, would say 10 days, you're out 10 days. And the local community parents loved it. And so I would harbor, I'm, I probably shouldn't admit that now, but I would harbor kids in my classroom to make sure they didn't get caught in a hall sweep. Cause I just didn't think it would be great for them to go. I, I wasn't as smart as you to think through all the research of why that would be bad. I just figured that was not going to help them. But at the high school level, they're about to go into the real world and their employer may not practice trauma-informed care with them. And so there is, I feel like the pushback I would get from high school is like, our jobs to prepare them for the real world. How is this helping them when their employers are not going to do that or the college they go to is not going to do that or the skill, trade skill place they're going to is not going to do that? Yeah, I, and I think that's valid. I think there's some validity to that, right? Developmentally, we do have to look at the different tiers. However, however, 
if we don't teach the skills and the, and the, and, and the tiers prior did not teach the skills to the kids, employability is low. If they can't stay regulated, if they don't understand emotional regulation, if they don't understand what happens when they do get angry within the way their body feels or the way that their mind works, like those things happen and come out. And we have kids that leave high school with a diploma, with no social and emotional competency, with no ability to understand why do I feel the way I feel and what am I going to do with this? Do you know how I know that? That was me. I graduated at 17 and I actually graduated going half day because I had enough credits. I had the diploma. I had no social and emotional competency. I had no self-awareness. I had none of those pieces that back when I was in school, those, those didn't, things didn't even exist. We were told, be that, sit down, be quiet and do what you're told. Yep. See, the world has progressed. The research has progressed. The neuroscience has progressed. Now we understand that there is five core competencies. And I know that the, the, the leader in me aligns to those perfectly around empowerment and the seven habits itself. It's designed for just that. And I know we're not talking about that, but as a practitioner, I utilize those habits. I utilize those three personal and those three uh, community celebrated uh, habits. So, I mean, I think that we didn't have these things when we were younger. And so when we're preparing the kids for the world we lived in, we don't live in the same world. As a, as a, as a, as a teenager, I wasn't an advocate for others like I see kids now. I personally marched with 10,000 people downtown organized by four 15-year-old kids from a local high school. That did not exist in my world. So I think when we say we're preparing them for the real world, the real world is not the world we jumped into when we left high school. It's a completely different place. I think I'm hoping the rest of my questions get you fired up. I'm going to keep trying to push on you this way because I, I really appreciate your passion and your response to this. Um, I heard you say, I don't want to, I don't want to give you the quote because it was so powerful coming from you, but you were talking about uh, punishment and kids with trauma. Um, and it was so powerful of like uh, uh, in terms of our belief of kids who are going with trauma, we just got to punish them uh, and that's going to fix them. Do you, what, how do you feel when you hear that? Of like, okay, they got trauma, but we, we still got to punish them to hold them accountable. How does that make you feel? Accountable. You, you can't punish trauma out of kids. It's not possible. It, it's impossible. Physiologically, kids are responding to the impact of trauma on them. Physiologically. Oh, and neurologically. Right. So there's neurological responses to the impact of trauma. I'm not going to get into the whole polyvagal theory and the impact of the nervous system and trauma, but I will give you an example. If right now I'm sitting in my office at school, if that door, somebody kicked that door in and started screaming, my body would do certain things. My, my pupils would constrict. My heart would start beating. I would start breathing heavy. Blood would start flowing to my appendages. And what would happen? I would go into fight or flight. I will tell you, I am a fighter. I run to the danger. I do not run away from it. Um, and so that is the body's stress response happening through our nervous system. So here's an example. We have children, and I know you've heard it before, and I know every educator has heard this. They came in on 1,000 or 100 or a million or whatever number we use, right? 
Okay, so what we know is if that child came in and their nervous system is already in that state, then what do we need to do? We need to get the nervous system to calm down. We need to, um, we need to take them through the power of breathing, breath, and movement, right? I know your listeners can't see this. I have a pulse oximeter that sits on my desk. Why? It's like a video game for kids and the power of breath. We sit it on their finger. I turn it on. They watch their heart rate go from 120 to 70. And I'm like, bam, you just rock that out, right? Teaching kids. And so punishing kids when they're coming in on 1000 is not going to fix the fact that their nervous system is in disarray. Secondly, if we don't understand the impact of trauma, then we're missing the link. And here's what I say. Trauma is not what happens to kids. It's the way in which our bodies, minds, and ourselves respond to it. One thing that can be considered traumatic to one person may not be to another. And I'm going to give you a, an example. I served as a foster, uh, my family served as a foster family for nearly two years. I went through extensive trauma therapy with the oldest of our boys. And we got to the point where um, the therapist said, we're going to start tackling some big things that have happened. Now, mind you, I don't tell trauma stories because it's not mine to tell, but I can tell you the child had experienced incomprehensible trauma that most humans will never have to experience. And we get to that moment and he, and she said, so what do you want to talk about first? What do you want to tackle first? And he said, when my dog got hit by a car. And I was like, say what? All these things that have happened. But for him, that was one of the most traumatic experiences he had ever had. And so just because we don't think that maybe they've lost a loved one or their parents beat them or they weren't given food for a week, that isn't what we're talking about in trauma. And I think right now, what as a society, there's relational trauma happening across our country in a very affluent areas where kids are missing relational connection because they don't have the bonds, the healthy attachment bonds that a lot of kids have. There are kids in poverty that are relationally rich. They have a connectedness of family that people in, in higher incomes do not even know the experience. And so I think we have to be cautious on what we see as trauma for sure. But at the end of the day, punishing kids for their experiences is, I mean, it just doesn't make, I mean, it doesn't make sense, honestly, logically. It doesn't make sense. Sorry. Neuro neurologically, physiologically, it also does not make sense. Um, what do you say? I, I want to come back to a personal note in a second. Um, but what do you say or have you had to say, and hopefully you may not have, to the teacher, because I've, I've been in for a role like this before, uh, where they say, that's not my job, Matthew, or Mr. Yeah. Portillo, whatever they call you. Like, I, I'm going to educate the kid, but if they come in on 100 or 1,000 or 1 million, they got to go until they can come back. That's your job or that's somebody else's job. How, how have you had to handle that? Because I have to imagine you've experienced that before. So um, I, think it, I think it's interesting because it's not how it's always been, right? So I think we have to build adult capacity just like we do kids. And so it took starting with building our own capacity as adults. Um, I did send children home at the beginning of this journey. Um, I'm very 
ashamed to say I send 32 kids home for 56 days, right? Because that I was principling the way I thought I, I should be doing. Yep. And I made it a mission over the next four years after that year to eliminate suspensions. And I will tell you, we've eliminated suspensions. We don't send kids home. And now it's a part of our school culture. Teachers don't ask because they know it isn't going to happen. But what we do is we ensure that the kids are getting the depth of the support they need. Um, now, I will tell you, we do have to do some some time away, not from the class, not from the teacher. We make sure it's in a space where there's other kids for the sake of safety sometimes right. um, because trauma is real. Um, it is not, and, and I know there's an Edutopia video that was done on my school. It's been viewed 7 million times and it makes it look like unicorns and rainbows. A lot of days it is like that, but there's a lot of days it's not. Um, it's messy work. It's hard work. Um, and I'm going to be brutally honest and say it increases the accountability of the adult um, because as a principal, it is much easier for me to send a child home that is disrupting the school environment. It's easy, yep. but it isn't what's best for the kid. And so I think it's taken time now. Teachers just know. And when we hire, I'm very, I'm very upfront. I actually send a candidate letter out. These are our core values and beliefs. We don't send children home. Um, and this is how we support you and the child. Um, there was a lot of pushback at the beginning, uh, and I don't fault people for that, but I'm very honest. This is how we are going to approach it. If it doesn't fit your uh, personal mission, if it doesn't fit your paradigm, um, then this may not be the school that, that you could thrive in. I mean, we have to have those honest conversations. Well, how were you able early on, I mean, I think district politics are different everywhere, but I, two, two questions I have. You come back with this paradigm shift and you say, team, we've got to do this. I got to imagine that, you know, with your energy, I'm sure there's some folks that are like, that sounds great. And other folks are like, you know, with all due respect, Mr. Portel, it is March. I'm going to wait till over the summer or next year to do it. And you're saying, no, we can't. Uh, how did you overcome that? And then secondly, to boldly proclaim that policy that seems very inspiring to me, uh, about no suspensions and we take care of it in-house, you've got to have some district backing, I assume, or maybe you don't, maybe you had, you proved it over time. Tell me, tell me that uh, journey second after you talk about your kind of origin, getting people on the bus kind of story. So um, this is an interesting story, actually, uh, in, a, in, a, in a process. 50% uh, of the staff left the first year. Hmm. Um. Was your assistant soup really stoked about uh, your ability to retain staff at that point? No, not, not then. They weren't, right. they weren't too excited, um, but they didn't question it either because I did tell them why. Okay. Um, and I was very transparent. And here's what I say. Some great teachers, amazing educators went to different schools and I helped them get there. It wasn't personal. I, 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 and I would say, you are a great teacher, but what we were trying to do didn't fit the uh, outlook of those that were here. Okay. I respect that. I would rather you say, you know what? I don't think so. Um, so I think I may go to a different school. I will help you get there. Um, I respect that. I would much rather do that than you stay and try to sabotage the vision that the majority of the staff has. I respect that better. Um, after that first year, it was a rebuild, right? So we were able to, and I say we, because I take a team approach on everything. This isn't me. 
I wish I could have my team sitting here with me, um, but I shoo them out of school as soon as it's over so they can get to their own families. But I wish I could have them with me because it wasn't just me. This isn't just Cortell's idea. Um, and we began to rebuild the staff um, based off of that shift. And so since then, um, like the last three years, I think we one teacher moved on um, and she got married and moved to South Carolina. Um, and so we're not losing staff like that because now we have a synergy of understanding and movement um, where we under, all understand the, the mission and work we're, 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 we're developing. When it comes to the district, I didn't ask for permission. I just did it. And, and, and I think my, my theory was, if we can just show outcomes that are positive for kids, then nobody can tell us we can't. Um, and that is exactly what happened. Well, um, sorry to cut you off. I, I, I find that truly transform, transformative leaders always are asking for forgiveness, not doing it to, to be rude or mean, but there's so many leaders that I actually believe could be transformative leaders but somewhere early in their career or mid, midway in their career, they make a choice to not be as bold for fear of losing their job. What kind of encouragement do you have people to uh, step out you know, on a limb and take those chances? So I, I think the advice that, that was given to me by a mentor um, who used to work in our school district, um, and I'm very fortunate he now works at Vanderbilt University and oversees um, some of their student teachers, and I get to see him often. He told me from literally the first year of my year as teaching is never waver from your ethics, from what you truly believe is ethically right for kids. Um, and I've never lost that. Um, and so I think that, that that risk that I stepped in was I, one, could justify it, not just with my feelings, but with neuroscience, and physiological science and and health, health outcomes. I could actually justify why I was doing it. It wasn't just because I felt it. It was because this is what current research is saying. So what I would tell people is if you're going to do that, you've got to know why you're doing it. And you've got to be able to passionately express why you're doing it. Um, and I was able to do that when I was asked, what are you doing? Now, I'm very proud to say just a few years after our elimination of suspensions, um, our director at that time actually eliminated suspensions in elementary schools. Now that's since been overturned, um, but I think paradigm shifts are hard. And you're talking about a profession that has a minimal change in the structure for hundreds of years. And so shifting a paradigm in education, I think is one of the most complex organizations and fields to make that shift. Think about medicine how often things change. I mean, it's nonstop. Um, there's new discoveries, there's new machines, there's new, everything is always new. So change is just kind of how it works. But in education, yeah, technology has changed, but no, we still continue with the same structures. Um, and that to me is that, that, that it's time to do things differently. Wow. Uh, a guy that, if you don't know, we had on the uh, uh, podcast several months ago, Michael B. Horn is someone that I think you would get along with great. Um, he is someone who's just looking at the world and thinking about disruption and how to do things differently. And so I, I ask, what, what's it going to take for us to disrupt education to where 
that is the norm. I've never, I've been a lot around a lot of really cool people recently asking this question and you just said it in a way that really uh, hit me like a ton of bricks of we're doing it in medicine. Education is critically important to the future of society. Why are we not, that's the most important place to have this growth mindset and everything else. Why are we not doing it here? Well, you know, here's what, and, and I've been, I've been doing this talk a lot. We're actually in the midst of a ton of opportunity right now. Um, the law of change shows that disruption happens either, either man-made or naturally when something shakes everything. And I don't know if you've heard of this uh, thing. It's called COVID. I don't know if you've heard of it yet. Um, it's something that came out a couple of years ago, but it has disrupted all systems. And so there is this natural shift in the equilibrium of education. I don't know if you remember when we had to go virtual, if you went virtual. Think about that adjustment that educators made that fast. We went from being like having maybe 75 computers in our school to being a one-to-one -one district in literally like a month. Wow. So educators made that shift because they had to. And so sometimes when we're in these natural disruptions like COVID, there's opportunity to start pushing the shifts that we can do because people right now are having conversations that they've never had before about mental health, social and emotional learning, the state and development of our kids and the impact of social isolation. These, these conversations aren't conversations that are, were happening before, but they're happening now. And so in the old, uh, the old mantra, strike while the iron is hot, it's hot right now. It's time to start thinking about what adjustments can we make, not for us as educators, but for the kids that we serve every single day. I mean, let's be honest. Kids know more about things that are going on than we do. I mean, technology. My foster son showed me how to use my Roku in ways I didn't even know existed. Like, I'm like, wait, how did you do that? He's like, I just pushed this button and told it what to do. And it did it. And I'm like, I didn't know it did that, right? So I think we have to also look at the, what you said, prepare the kids for the real world. Well, I think it's pretty clear to say right now, we're preparing the kids for a world we don't even know exists right now. Yep. The world we're preparing them for doesn't even exist. Um, and so I think we have to look outside of the box and, and the bricks of, of schools and start thinking, what can we do differently, both academically and socially and emotionally? So speaking of that, I know we both share a similar passion for the adults in the building. I mean, we talk a lot about kids. You talk a lot about the importance of kids, but it's all about making sure you take care of the adults so we can serve and love the kids better. Right now, coming, it's not really coming out of COVID, right? It's just a different version of it this year for us. Um, burnout is so real. One of, the, one of the other part of my job, I get to travel quite a bit and talk to superintendents all across North America and talking to superintendents and principals and feeling their pain and their concern about how their teachers are just maxed out. One, are you feeling that? Two, what is different in terms of other burnout cycles you've seen before? And three, what are you guys trying to do to really care for your folks? So yes, yes, and yes, um, we are feeling it. And, and here's what we do. We actually talk about it. We don't just pretend it's not there. Um, so for example, on uh, Monday, our faculty meeting, we did um, a piece with our staff where we talked about self-talk 
and how it impacts us, our colleagues and our kids. And so we then had people write down those things that they've heard people say. Then we've had them write down what they have said. And then we talk about outcomes that they're wanting to achieve. We actually are talking about. Because if all we do is sit around and talk about how horrible everything is, then we're all going to be everything is horrible. And it's hard and it's tough and it's real. The weight is real. So now I ask my staff, so what, now what? Okay, so that is true. We all feel this. So now what are we going to do? And we start collaboratively processing as a school, how can we lean on each other? How can we support each other? What can we do differently? I encourage taking personal days. Take them. Professional days, take them. If you want to learn more, I'm taking them right? Like, it's okay. Don't feel bad. It's okay. If we don't have subs, we got your back. We'll cover it. Like, we're going to do that. So I think heading this on and having open and honest conversations and allowing teachers to be honest and say, it's too much right now. Okay. What? So for example, the week before that, we did uh, feedback with every team. And here's the questions I asked. You ready? Just one. What barriers are preventing you from being a successful educator that I can impact. So they say, I need this done, ordered it that day. I need this. Okay. Planning day. You can do it next Monday. What else? We started eliminating any barriers that we have the circle of control because at the end of the day, we can look at those impacts that we have zero control over and where there's nothing we can do about. We don't look at that. We look at what is in our circle of control. How can we impact those areas? that we have control of. And that's where we focus our energy. I do wanna say in front of me right here is um, my culture survey that I had, we do every year. You know, they do it in October, which is the greatest time of year to ask teachers how they're feeling. Yep. It's just that we do it then in like in February. I will say October and February, if, you, if we're gonna say February, those are the best. It's too, I love that they do them there because we get the best responses. And I'm going to be honest, and, and I'm going to show you this. Um, and this, I'll, this breaking so, news, oh, I guess you've had it for probably a, a few weeks. Or no, months. we actually just got it. And I haven't even shared this with the staff. So if they're going to listen to this, they're going to get a heads up. Do you see all those green pluses? I do. I do. You do. See that? I'm going to be honest. Like when I got the email, I was like dabbing my head with a little paper towel. Like I'm butting my top button. I took some deep breaths, like cracked my neck because I'm like, it's going to be bad. It's not bad. The teachers are feeling that there's inclusive pedagogy. They feel that professional learning has increased. They feel that the safety and discipline of our kids has increased. They feel that the school climate has increased. They feel that the school leadership has increased. All of it was green up. All of it, green positive increases. I was shocked. You just you just said something I, I'm intrigued by. So I... Uh, in the last week or so, um, I'm trying not to identify anybody by giving too much information. Uh, there's been a couple of districts that have implemented a policy, like let's say they had a professional development day coming up. Instead of doing professional development, they just gave that time back to educators. Uh, you just, it seemed to me like given the survey results, like it, that would not feel necessarily like a win for your staff. It still feels like they're like in the midst of all of this, they may want to lean into some professional development. How, how do you feel about like, let's just cancel PD and like give folks days versus 
doing some sort of professional development. So I'm going to cross my fingers and hope nobody from my school district is listening. Um, <laughs> I, so there, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> there is times and place for both of those. Right. December 17th is not a time for professional development. <laughs> right? And so December 17th is an in-person day before the break. Mm. So I got to give a little to get a little. So I said, if we get 100% on this survey, it's a virtual work day. Yeah. Um, those are important days. Yep. Virtual work day and whatever that means to you. I think that sometimes those power of that pause and giving people just space is great. But I will tell you when I said, when we come back on the fourth, fifth, and sixth, we're realigning. It, the, it's time to do the, it, it's messy work. We're going to realign. We're having a whole day around what does restorative processes look like on a tier one level? So what does that look like as a classroom community? Then the next day we're talking about what is de-escalation and how does it work and what do we do, right? You're like, wait, that's like 101. Yep, we have to continually go back and check ourselves every year on these processes. So in January 4th and 5th and 6th, teachers are going to be ready to do that. December 17th, no way. No way. And so I do think you have to use the time that you have with your staff to do two things. Build the community and connect them to each other. We don't do that enough in schools. We have a loo, which is an indoor playground. Half of the day on the 5th is going to be the Fall Hamilton Olympics. And it's all going to be done on our indoor playground. There's nothing better than a competition and trash talk. So we're going to be doing that. But on the fourth and the fifth, on the day and a half, we're going to be doing work. But I'm going to be honest, we, we, we like to have fun too. So one of my favorite things to do is Thanksgiving, which is the day before Thanksgiving break. Um, teachers opt in. We put, like the, the, we, put, we put a sign on the door, I'm fair game. Everybody is fair game if you're in it. And we have an absolute and utter blast. Last year, we started Tracksuit Tuesdays. We got tracksuits, custom tracksuits made for all the teachers that wanted to. On mine, it says coach. On my assistant principal, it says assistant to the coach. If you watch The Office, you know what that means. And everybody else got their last names. And we wore tracksuits on Tuesday. The funny thing was, when they told me I won principal of the year last year, I was in the track was in the track suit. <laughs> it was a Tuesday. So I had I the district showed up, but they're like PR folks and took camera, like I took pictures of everything. You. It wasn't that one. The second one, I was actually wearing a sweatshirt. Oh, from one of my students who is a designer. I actually have one of his shirts on today. It's called it. Cool Kids. Um, cool Kids. I like it. Yeah, it's the Cool Kids line. And they made a specific one for us. But I think we have to have fun too when we're doing what we're doing. Um, We've lost the fun in in our in our in, in our in our field. Um, it's okay to laugh together because you're gonna cry. Um, there's days we cry together, um, but we got to bring that fun. And sometimes that's those PD days of let's just enjoy being around each other. So we we end the podcast right now. We're trying to just dive into what makes people tick. And so we've been asking a series of questions to just understand more about what makes you tick. Um, I can't imagine there's anyone listening right now that's not thinking, I want to bring that type of swag that Matt Portell has to my team and that type of passion to my community. Um, what disciplines do you use on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis, or do you just have in your life that help you be the best version of yourself 
uh, that you can be. One of them is I have my own podcast and I selfishly do that because it drives my motivation to learn from other people. And so I do that every week, um, one hour on a Thursday. Matter of fact, I'll be on in like an hour and a half, um, two hours, actually. Um, that's one thing I do, honestly. And I continue to dig into this work. Um, the more I read, the more I learn, the more I can become more passionate around why we have to do this. I take my family time very, 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 very seriously. When I get home, I put my work phone upside down in the kitchen and I put it on the charger. Um, and I tend to close my computer. Um, I, I, definitely, um, I definitely value my family and my family time. And then lastly, I'm very fortunate. Um, I have a very little place that doesn't, uh, in, in rural Tennessee, we don't have internet, we don't have, our cell phones don't work and we have no television. Um, and I go there uh, monthly. Um, and in, even over October, uh, my gift that my, my wife and my, my, my family gives me every year is I get to go there for about three days for fall break by myself. Um, and I do, during that time, I literally just do a lot of reading, self-reflections, hiking, fishing. Um, and I do those things because that's what continues to bring um, my sharpening the saw. It's what makes me sharper. And then lastly, is I connect to my colleagues that get it. Um, I have a colleague, his name is Dr. Ricky Gibbs. He's in Washington, D.C. right now, keynoting. Uh, he's a principal here in Nashville. He's keynoting um, an equity conference. And our, his, his statement is iron sharpens iron. And so um, if I'm in that space that I need somebody, just, just I call him. Um, I have another colleague, James Urquhart. I call him. I have another colleague, Justin Uppinghaus. I call him. Um, because sometimes you just got to complain. And I'll say, man, I just got to get it off. I don't need a solution. Just, I just need to get it out. Um, and that helps, like yep. voicing it, right? Um, I do use an app on an occasion where it's an app of journaling. Um, yep. And I just journal my thoughts very quickly. Um, you can do actually daily. It gives you like this whole outcome, like you've done it for 12 days in a row. And it gives these little celebrations. Um, I'm going to be honest, my wife doesn't even know I do that. I do it in the car sometimes before I even walk into the school. Uh, that helps just to connect because uh, this work is heavy. It's heavy work. Uh, human work is heavy work. It's hard. Um, and compassion fatigue is a real thing. Vicarious trauma is a real thing. And I will tell you, burnout is a real thing. And so those are some of the things that I utilize um, that continue to drive me. So we're going to uh, highlight it in the notes, but um, before I move on, I need people to know there, there's going to be people trying to figure out how do they get more of you. Uh, the name of your podcast, which I just want to hear it from you, where are they going to go find you? Where are they going to go learn more uh, so they can have these rich conversations that you have with other educators? Yeah. So the podcast is, it's the shortest name in the history of podcasts. It's the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Podcast. Um, it, it, there's an office I, joke in here somewhere. <laughs> what did you say? I said, there's an office joke in here somewhere. You just, you brought up the office earlier. I'm thinking I'm trying to figure it out. With me. Hey, my leadership style is Michael Scott and Ted Lasso. So that's how I describe, <laughs> <Great combo. laughs> that's how I describe it. That, that is it. Um, but my podcast is, uh, normally it's, it, it's about every other Thursday at 7 PM. And we, I actually stream it live. Um, so people can interact. They actually can ask questions. Um, and then I record it onto a, a, the podcasting platforms. Um, but if they also want to contact me, I am principalist on Twitter and Instagram. And then on Facebook, I have like 16 pages. 
um, Trauma-Informed Educators Network, Trauma-Informed Educators Network podcast, uh, Matthew Portell and Paradigm Shift Education. So I don't stay very active on a lot of those. Um, and then the lastly is a network that I selfishly started to try to connect to people um, doing this work. Cause when I started, there weren't many uh, and it's the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Facebook group, which is now at 28,000. We just passed 28,000 people from 105 different countries uh, where people are going on there, sharing resources, um, asking for supports, figuring out how to adjust um, around this work. And, and I'm very proud of the impact of that little group that I selfishly was trying to create for my own self and learning. Um, but there's, there's a lot of resources out there that, um, that I hope will help. That's awesome. So one of the things you said a second ago was uh, you like to read. We, we know that uh, best leaders are the most curious people who are constantly trying to consume information, uh, whether it's podcasts or books or periodicals. What are you reading? What is the most impactful um, books or podcasts that have been in your life recently? Um, hands down, um, most recently is What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Um, it is an amazingly easy read um, that digs into the things that we've been discussing very deeply. Um, I was very fortunate to have Dr. Bruce Perry on my podcast to talk about the book. Um, I've been telling people, please get that book. It's not education driven. It's not about educators. It's about the work. The second one uh, is um, equity. Uh, oh, goodness, it just slipped my mind. Um, Equity Center Trauma-Informed Education by Alex Chevron. It digs into um, education and how trauma-informed work has to be grounded in with an equity lens. Um, it's a really good one. And then another one is um, Building a Restorative and Trauma-Informed School by Joe Brummer. Um, amazing book with a lot of amazing connections for educators. That's awesome. Do you have any like, daily habits with reading? Um, I asked because uh, we had one of my educational heroes, Jeffrey Canada, on this summer, and he talks about his like reading ritual of he has the being in New York, he's got the uh, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and I think the Washington Post, and he has them for very different reasons. And it was just really interesting. Do you have any reading rituals like that that help you? Yeah, right before I go to bed, I read Facebook posts. <laughs> me, too. Uh, me too i don't i don't have any reading rituals um and, and i do read a lot um but it is it, i get it in when i can fit it in honestly and a lot of times that's that's a lot of weekends um and i hyper focus on books so when i get going mm -hmm. um that that I, I i tend to finish them rather quickly um i i I am looking forward to the potential of having um, my own writing shortly, but we'll see how that uh, pans out in the next couple months. So. That was gonna be my next question for you, but we'll, we'll move past it and we'll let you come back on once you uh, put yours out there. Cause I know that has to be coming. Uh, if it's not, please make it come. Um, to end the podcast, I just wanna know what's, what's the best piece of advice? I mean, you're surrounded by, it sounds like really great mentors and you know, great educators, what's the best piece of advice that you've received lately or that you've received in your career just to encourage people to live and lead differently? It happened in grad school. Um, I did the strength finder to identify my five greatest strengths. And 
my professor who now works for the Department of Defense said, focus all your energy in your strengths and help and find people to help manage your weakness. Build the people around you to help manage those weaknesses, but focus relentlessly on those strengths. That was a shift for me because once I identified I am an activator, I'm not gonna wait on people. I Positivity is one of mine. Strategy is another one of mine. When I actually identified where my strengths lied, I utilized those to focus the work and energy that I do. It wasn't something, I'm gonna be honest, I've never color-coded anything in my life. <laughs> and so I was trying to be a color-coded principal and it was failing miserably. And so once I realized I don't have to be a color-coded principal because that's not who I am, I'm gonna be who I am and focus on my strengths. That was the game changer for me as a, as a principal. Um, I have a lot of energy, always have. Uh, and that's not a bad thing as I was told when I was a kid. So I think shifting what I was told what I needed to do and even when I was a child to understanding the gifts that I have and focusing on those gifts um, was the greatest uh, advice I had ever gotten um, in my career, to be honest. That is, that's incredibly helpful because I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about educators who have been scared of risk. Like I, I feel like even folks who aren't scared of risk need reminders sometimes that you need to take it as well as to your point, like we all want to be great. And so we see someone like you with your energy and your style, like, man, I got to be like Matthew Portell. I got to bring that. And to hear you say, no, just figure out your strengths and lean into it. That's how you're going to make real impact. I 100% agree. Um, because my wife is an engineer. I can never be my wife. I love speaking in front of people. It's her greatest nightmare. And so I think, and our relationship has taught me a lot in that, that it's okay to focus on your strengths. That's awesome. Well, this, I mean, we've gone way over. We normally go, I, I've got lost in time. Uh, and that's a, a compliment uh, in every way. Uh, your passion, your heart, your energy is just infectious. And I'm sure your school feels the same way. For those of you who are listening and you don't know Matthew Portell or you just found out who he is today, um, I can't encourage you enough to really figure out who this man is and what he's about. I know there's an organization that you've helped start that called Paradigm Shift Education. I don't know if that's where you want to drive people, but I feel like um, that's probably the best way to get some more Matthew Portell outside of what you already shared with your, um, your podcast. Is that right? Yeah. I tell people, if you want to hear like professional snark, you can follow me on Twitter. If you want to see random pictures of me fishing, that's Instagram. If you want to look at my family, that's Facebook. If you want to see professional posts, that's LinkedIn. So whatever you want, I'm out there. Um, I, I tend to, uh, I tend to push the envelope on Twitter and thinking, uh, when I am active, uh, and fortunately, I am a uh, principal by day, uh, and so I don't post a lot. But yeah, the, it, depending on what you want, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that was the coolest answer I've heard in a while. All right, do you have any uh, Ted Lasso humor or The Office you need to encourage us on? I, I kid, but like that's amazing. Uh, is that your favorite? Yes, we have a norm, thanks to Ted Lasso, in our core team meetings. Never bring an umbrella to a brainstorm. 
<laughs> that once we heard it became a norm. We're just in here flushing out ideas. Do not poo-poo on the parade. We are simply just coming up with ideas. And so I would say that don't bring an umbrella to a brainstorm. That's awesome. This, this has been so encouraging uh, professionally, but also for me personally. Um, thank you for bringing your head and heart. You're, for those of you who are not being able to watch, you're in your office right now, so you've not left school. Uh, I can only imagine what could be happening prior to or what might be happening after. And so the fact that you've been fully focused on this is such a blessing and an honor. Thank you so much. And as soon as you write your book and get it out, I hope you'll consider coming back and us geeking out on the topic with together. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, thanks for the conversation. I, I feel like that's exactly what it was. And, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate everything that you do. Oh man, this has been a blessing. I cannot wait to get you back. So get writing that book and go serve. Uh, I know that you've got other professional duties right now. Go do that and then get home and love your family well, because that's clearly very important to you. Matthew, thank you so much for making time for us. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. Mm -hmm.